All right, so tonight we'll be in Confession of Faith, Chapter 2, and this will be Sections 1 and 2, Part 2. Uh, we did Sections 1 and 2 in a really kind of broad overview a couple of weeks ago, and so now we're going to visit them in a little bit more of a, a deep dive way. Uh, if you're using the copy of the Confession that's in the Trinity Psalter, handle this page 921, otherwise if you're using just the regular Confession, just, you know, Chapter 2. Paragraphs 1 and 2. So two weeks ago, we spent almost all of our time on two uh, very technical but also very important theological terms. Does anybody remember uh, what those were? One of these very important technical terms. Wait, when? It was two weeks ago, so the last time that we met. One of them was simplicity. What do we mean when we say that God is simple? What we do not mean is that he is easy to be understood. We mean something else. Does anybody remember? We watched the uh, the, like, the video with Dr. DeYoung. Yeah. Like not made up of stuff, like not a compound. Correct. That's exactly right. He's not made up of smaller parts. He just is. He is pure being. And that, that's drawn out really in the opening words uh, of, of paragraph one, when it talks about he's a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, uh, a most pure spirit. Uh, that, that's the idea that God is not made up of smaller things, like Opal said. He just is. Uh, a great passage to go to to look at this is actually, and we'll spend some time here later, but if you've got your Bible, Exodus chapter 34. This is... Um, after the golden calf, after the breaking of the tablets, and Moses has interceded asking for mercy, and God has granted mercy and, and promised to, to forgive. Moses says, let me, let me see your face. And of course you all know, no man can see God and live. So he does not get to see the face of the Lord. Rather, the Lord passes by him and declares his name in Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7, and he says, the word of God says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The point is that as God is going past Moses and, and he's proclaiming his name, this is who the Lord is. This is not aspects of who he is. He is most loving. He is also most just and most terrible in all of his judgments. That's aspects, they're not aspects, rather, not things that are added together to make up God, but rather that's a representation of who he is. He is perfect in all of these attributes. The other word that we talked about a fair bit was the idea of aseity. Does anybody remember what aseity means? Yeah, experience. Self-existent, self-sustaining. Yep, self-existent, self-sustaining, uh, self-sufficient, you might say. Um, and, and we see this in several places in Scripture. Uh, one would be, again, in Exodus chapter 3, when he first reveals himself to Moses. And this is, of course, the passage with the burning bush, wherein we see that the bush is burning, 
but it is not consumed. And uh, we, we talked about last week, what does that mean about this fire? It doesn't need the bush. Normally a, a fire is feeding on the thing that it's burning. Uh, this fire does not need the bush. And that's a picture of God's self-sufficiency. And that's really what's brought out heavily in the opening words of section 2 of chapter 2. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in any need of any of his creatures. And so there's, those are two um, overarching categories that we want to take into our study of God. Uh, he is a simple being, meaning he's, he's complete, he's not made up of anything, and he is a self-sufficient being, which is completely and wholly different from us. And there's two other technical terms that, that will be important as we move through this chapter. Uh, they're, they're different categories for attributes of God. One of them is communicable. God has some attributes that are communicable, and he has other attributes that are incommunicable. What, the, what do those words mean? Well, a communicable attribute of God is something that you can emulate. It's an attribute of God that he um, also gives to his creatures, specifically humanity, um, as something that they can do. Does anyone want to take a guess on what then incommunicable means? Something we cannot do. Right. Something that, that is not communicated to you. So examples of incommunicable attributes would be things like his omnipresence. You can't be everywhere all at once. Or his omniscience. You can't know everything that there is to know. And we'll talk more about those as we go on. But there are other attributes of God that we can emulate, such as we read in Exodus 34, that he is loving, that he is just, that he is merciful, that he is gracious, and on down the line you could go. And we'll look at those in more detail as we move on. But now with those kind of uh, categories in place, we'll look at what the confession says and kind of work almost line by line through these two sections. So <clears throat> we begin with the first thing the confession wants us to know is there is but one only living and true God. First thing the confession wants us to know is that there is only one God. Why might that be considered good news? Why is it a good thing that there is only one God? Why is it better that there's one God instead of two gods? You don't have to please two. <clears throat> you don't have to please two? Okay. So so your obedience is, is, is dedicated to half as many gods. That's good. All right. James? You don't have to worry about like, which one should we be loyal to. Yeah. You don't have to worry about which one you should be loyal to. Um, <laughs> there's this idea called dualism that there's like a good God and a bad God. And, and you have to, you know, kind of cross your fingers and hope the good one wins. Well, there's only one God. You do not need to worry about that. Why, why, not, why is it better than pantheism? Pantheism is the idea that not only are there two gods, but there's like infinite numbers of gods. A, a world wherein everything is God or everything is, is part of God is ultimately a world that is purposeless because God being one, there being one God who is the author and creator of all things, has a purpose that's being worked out. If there are multiple gods, a plethora of gods that are all equal, they can't really assign a, a universal overarching purpose to things. And then it's also good that there's only one God as opposed to atheism, because in the system of atheism, which we actually spent um, 
fair bit of time dissecting uh, when we did the summer study on why should I believe Christianity. In a world where there is no God, then there is no significance. There is no um, point to, to what we're doing. So there is one God, and that's good news. And then there's also the confession goes on to speak directly about the idea of simplicity that we've already kind of covered. And then third, the confession wants us to know, it uses this word, without body parts or passions, then it says he is immutable. Does anybody know what immutable means? Yes? Unchangeable. Unchangeable. Why is that a good thing, that God does not change? Because it means that he's like reliable. Yeah, that's exactly right. He's reliable. You, uh, you, you can trust his promises because he does not change. You can, uh, you can know his character because he does not change. Um, when I was growing up, my, my dad was a very unpredictable man. You never knew what was going to make him happy versus what was going to set him off. That is not a healthy environment to grow up in because you never know what to expect from the one that is over you. Our God does not change. We know his character, and it is constant. It is reliable. There's a, several Bible verses uh, that, that you can go to for this. One is Malachi 3.6. I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, you are not consumed. In other words, I am the Lord. I have made a covenant with my people, and I don't change. Therefore, you can trust that covenant promise that you will not perish but have eternal life. Uh, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above who is, who, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He does not change. Uh, and, and on we could go. And then the confession also says that he is incomprehensible. It says he's immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, not able to be comprehended. Well, that can't be absolutely true, or else we're wasting our time trying to study him, right? Because if he's so, what in what sense is he incomprehensible, Josiah? Can't understand like the entirety of him. You can understand like parts of him, but not the entirety. Yeah, you can't. You you'll never get your mind fully around God, uh, and in some sense, we ought to expect this, right? Uh, we ought, and, and we'll talk more about this as as we work through, but. A being that is, is utterly transcendent and exists apart from the created order is in some sense, we don't, we don't have an analogy. And we'll see this especially next week when we talk about his nature uh, within the Trinity, of which there is no analogy. And I, I will just tell you guys this, very rarely can you make absolute statements in theology, but anytime any Bible teacher says, I've got an analogy for the Trinity, they're wrong. <laughs> there is no analogy. I've actually got a a funny YouTube video that some of you may have seen that we'll watch next week, debunking literally every popular analogy for the Trinity because it doesn't it doesn't work. Uh, he is completely and totally incomprehensible. And then it says also uh, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. I have here in my notes when we say that he is most holy, we mean that there is nothing like him. He is completely set apart. When we say that he is most free, that means there's nothing above him. There's nothing that, that governs his will, that directs his decisions. He is most free from all of those sorts of things. 
And he is most absolute, meaning there is not only nothing like him, there is nothing above him, but when we say he's most absolute, we mean there is nothing apart from him. By that I mean he is the, the source and the fountain of all existence. John would say it this way in John chapter 1, verse 3, without him was nothing made that was made. There is nothing that exists apart from God. Working all things according to his immutable and most righteous will. Uh, we'll talk more about God's uh, immutable and most righteous will when we get into chapters 3 and 5 that would deal with his, his providence and his... Um, his, his providence in chapter 3, and or actually providence in chapter 3, and his eternal decree in chapter 3 and providence in chapter 5. But for now, the point is God's will doesn't change. We can rely on it. It has been revealed to us, and it is all working out for his own glory. So when we talk about the will of God that is unchanging, we talk about the will of God that is good for us and that is for his own glory, um, there will be times in life that you will uh, engage in, in hardships, that you will, maybe not you directly, those, that will happen, but you'll also witness it in other people's lives. And you'll say, how could this circumstance possibly be for the glory of God? How could God possibly be glorified in, insert the problem here, how could God possibly be glorified in, uh, I don't know, the, the situation in, in Ukraine? How could God possibly be glorified in something as, as wicked as, as the Nazi regime and the Holocaust? How could God possibly be glorified in, in something catastrophic like September 11th? How could God possibly be glorified in all of these things? And the fact is that because God is incomprehensible, because God is bigger than us and understands things that we cannot, we're not always going to understand how God is glorified in the tragedies that we see in this world. We can only say his word says it, and so it is. Um, and, and this is an illustration I, I've used of this before, and uh, it's, it's pertinent now as well. You know, tomorrow morning, uh, my, my son is scheduled for an MRI. They're just checking some things. We think it's not any major concern. Nonetheless, he hates going to the doctor. And he hates being poked and prodded. And he hates getting shots. And he hates all this stuff. And he doesn't understand a single bit of it. But eventually, his mom is going to calm him down and say, I'm here and I know. And he's going to trust her. Because that's what happens every time. Because his mom and those doctors, while they're doing things that he does not understand, they're doing things that are actually good. And at some point, we also, when, when, when things happen in this world that we don't understand, it doesn't fit with our view of how God should do things. We have to, at some point, accept he knows more than us. He is beyond us. And he has said that he works all things together for good. And, and that's kind of where we're left. Any questions on that before we move on into other portions of this? That's a that's a big thing that you guys are going to need to hold on to as you as you move into adult life and, and more mature 
categories. Uh, then there's this just this list of what I've what I've labeled communicable attributes. After that, most wise, most holy, most free, uh, not most absolute. That wouldn't communicate to us. Working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable will, uh, for his own glory. Most loving, these are the communicable attributes, I'm sorry. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. These are things that, that God is the perfect example of. And these are also things that we can use to investigate our own lives and say, how am I growing in my own personal godliness? How am I doing in these things would people say of me as a default would people say of our youth group as a default that's a loving group of kids would they say that's a gracious group of kids would would they say that's a patient group of kids would they say that's a group of kids that that hates sin would they say that of you individually these are things that we should regularly be checking in our own hearts about because these are things that God's word expects of us. Uh, the, the fruit of the spirit is not limited to Galatians 5, 22 to 23. The fruit of the spirit is ultimately godliness, which is marked out by these categories, these uh, attributes. And that's a regular diagnostic that we should all do. Uh, we'll move on into the, into the next section uh, section two, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in the need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them. Does that raise any question marks for anybody? In a church where we're taught all the time that our chief end is what? And yet God does not derive any glory from us? How does that work? How are both of those things true? Because we like, obey him, but like, he doesn't obey us. Yeah. He still calls us to obey him, right? And, and, to, and to glorify him, and yet he doesn't need us to, yeah? Next phrase, but only manifesting his own glory in us. Yeah. It's good context clues there, Josiah. I respect that. That's good. Um, we don't add to God's glory so much as we acknowledge it. Um, she's not here tonight, so I can use her as an illustration as well. Uh, my wife is a better singer than me. I'm a very bad singer. She's pretty good. And that statement of reality is true whether we demonstrate that to you or not, whether we both stand side by side and sing, it's, it's true objectively whether or not that happens. In the same way, God is glorious whether or not we acknowledge it, and yet we are called to acknowledge it. Not because he needs it, not because it adds to him like Opal said, but because he made us for that end. Creation and redemption are, are outworkings of God's glory rather than um, things that add to it. And then lastly, and we'll, we'll close with them. We'll close with this. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. 
In his sight, all things are plain and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing to him is contingent or uncertain. There's nothing that God does not know. There is nothing that God is not correct about. And there's nothing that he learns. There's nothing that God does not know. There's nothing he is incorrect about. And there's nothing that he learns. God has a different relationship to knowledge than you and I do. Um, We are always growing in our knowledge. We are hopefully always uh, studying and being diligent, not just academically, but in your job, in your family life, you'll have to learn people. Um, hopefully you're always learning. We are always learning facts. God does not learn facts. God makes facts. Things are true. Be- everything that is true is true because God made it that way. When you learn a fact, you're really just discovering what God said would be. When we, when we learn facts in biology, we're learning how God made something. And because he is that kind of God, we owe him, as the confession concludes, whatever form of worship, service, or obedience that he is pleased to require of us because he is holy and entirely unique and distinct and is the source of all existence. He is well within his rights to require of us a lifetime of devotion and praise because apart from him there is no life. Now, next week we'll, we'll discuss section three, which deals with God as Trinity. And I, I want you to remember that, that all these things that we've said about God tonight and, and all of these attributes and, that we've talked about that, that are his, are his in all three members of the Trinity. Meaning, there is nothing that we've said tonight that is true of the Father, but not of the Son. Or that's true of the Son, that's not true of the Spirit or the true of the Spirit that's not true of the Father and the Son, all three persons of the Trinity are fully God and possess all of these attributes. Uh, If you want to do a further study on the attributes of God, I would highly recommend uh, Arthur Pink's, I'll get you in a second, he's got a book called The Attributes of God uh, that is exceptional and and very accessible. Question? How are they all completely the same if they have different roles? Sure. So they are the same in their essence, but not in their function. Does that make sense? They're the same in terms of they're, they're fully God, but yes, their mode of operations uh, is different. And that's really the only way that we can distinguish them. Um, good question. Anything else before I close us in prayer? All right, let me pray for us. Lord, you are the God beyond all praising. All things are of you, from you, and to you. You are the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the redeemer. And Lord, we confess that you are too big for us to fit into our finite minds. And yet we do praise you. And we pray, Father, that uh, as we leave this place, that we would reflect on the greatness of of who you are. And that you would uh, help us even next week as we prepare to study uh, the, the Trinity, you, the Son, and the Spirit, and that we would grow in an even greater appreciation and amazement at the God who has made us, who has redeemed us, and who is bringing us home to glory. 
We ask in Christ's name. Amen.